Hello and welcome to the Hay Festival podcast where we bring you conversations with the world's greatest writers and thinkers every Friday. For this week's episode we've selected a live Q&A from Hay Festival Book of the Month 2021, All the Young Men by Ruth Coker-Burks. It's 1986 and a 26-year-old Ruth discovers the nurses who have been caring for her friend drawing straws to decide who has to enter a room with a young man inside suffering from AIDS. This sparks the beginning of a long fight by Coca-Burks for the rights of the men dying in her town, Hot Springs, Arkansas. Ruth is in conversation with Philippe Sands. Ruth, we are thrilled to have you. You've written an extraordinary book, um, one that has touched me and I think has touched so many people who've read it. And we're going to have an opportunity to tell you, uh, give an opportunity for you to tell your story uh, that you've written uh, in the book. But can we begin? Can you just tell us a little bit about who you are and where you're sitting and what part of the world you're in? Well, I, um, I'm sitting in my living room in uh, northwest Arkansas. I live now about four hours from where the book takes place in Hot Springs. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm just having a nice life. And before the events of the mid-1980s that you write about, when AIDS entered so many of our lives and entered your life in a very real way, right. well, tell us a little bit about your life before then, your childhood and the kind of, the kind of existence that you had, your family, and, and, and just to situate you. Right. Well, my um, daddy took care of me until uh, 1960-59, and he was 60 years older than my mother, and she was oh, not 60 years older, sorry about that, 20 years older. He was 60 when I was born, and my mother was 40. And uh, they married, um, I think she was like 35 or something. And anyway, he told her that he wanted a baby girl, and so here I am. And um, when I was six months old, they incarcerated my mother. They took her in handcuffs away to a tuberculosis sanatorium, hours and hours and hours up in the mountains. The doctors had said she was a nurse and she knew she didn't have TB, but the doctors were convinced that she did. So um, they sent her home just in time for daddy to die because he was dying when um, I was born. He had emphysema end stages and so it was kind of a business deal that she would take care of him until he died and um, you know he would leave her his pension and uh, and me and we didn't know each other when she came home she came home very ill they found out that she only had um, there was only three cases in the United States of this very rare lung disease so, you know, she came home very sick and had a, you know, five-year-old to have to take care of. And she just wasn't equipped to be a mother. Yeah. And then your childhood and what, what working life did you have? I mean, you were, by the time AIDS came on the scene in the mid-80s, you were in your early 30s. What, tell us about your life in the immediate times before and then well, changes. Well, I was, I was 25 when it came along into my life. And I was selling real estate and, um, you know, just whatever you have to do to make a living as a single woman in Arkansas, uh, I did. My only requirement for a job is it had to be legal and vertical. And that was just for me. I didn't care how anybody else made a living, but those are my only rules. 
and and your family also had um, this ownership of of a, a part of the story that becomes very important. Can you tell us a little bit about the family cemetery? My mother, uh, I guess we could generously call her. Um, what is it? Um, ex, not ex, eccentric. That's it. Eccentric. And so she and my uncle had had this war going on for 40 years before I was ever born. So when I was 10, my mother, um, he had been in an awful fight with my grandmother. So my mother, she went to the lady that took care of the cemetery and bought 262 grave spaces. So he couldn't be buried with the rest of her family. And she had her mon monument put up that said, woe be unto ye hypocrites, Pharisees, and scribes. And it's a paraphrased out of, I think, Second Timothy. But anyway, she goes, and that's for your Uncle Jack, I mean, Uncle Fred, too. So, you know, who would ever think that there would come a time when, you know, I'm an only child. What was I going to do with all those grave spaces? And who would think that, you know, in just a few years, this awful plague would happen where people didn't even want their children to bury them because of the shame. Can we go back to the beginning of the book, in a sense? The book opens mm -hmm. very powerfully with one of the opening days of what you've called the plague hit. How did you come to be in that hospital on that day? And can you take us through what happened exactly on that day and 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 i can follow up then with a couple of reflections i uh have i had a friend she lived 25 years past her cancer diagnosis and she's living so bonnie's where you know we learned all of this together and i was at the hospital she had oral cancer so i was doing her translating for her and um, I had noticed that these nurses, uh, this big red bag gone up on this door, don't, you know, no entry, biohazard and all of that. And I, they had a little cart with the paper gown and, you know, hat covers and all of that on it. And uh, the nurses were drawing straws. Three nurses were drawing straws to see who would go out, go in and check on this young man. And, you know, we were friends up there. Bonnie had had all of her reconstructive surgeries on that floor. And, Every, you know, I would bake cookies and take them up and we'd all eat out of the same Ziploc bag. And, you know, we were friends. And um, so I just could not believe what I was seeing out of these women. And then when they drew straws a second time, they all just kind of disappeared down the hallways and no one went in to check on him. And his food trays were stacking up outside the door. And I just couldn't stand it one more minute. And I snuck into his room. And that's when I found Jimmy. And he was so frail and he was so tiny in that bed. I couldn't, I could barely tell him from the sheets. And what, what did you understand about his situation? And, and what did you learn on that first day? Well, I had heard about AIDS. I have a cousin in Hawaii who, is or who was gay. He still is, and he's still living and never caught HIV, thankfully. But he, um, so I knew about it, and, um, but I didn't know much. 
because it, you know, it wasn't mentioned until like, you know, 1985, I believe in July of that year was the first article in Time Magazine about this horrible disease. But I'd heard whispers about it. And, you know, every now and then you would see something on TV that, you know, like nine gay men have this horrible, you know, birthmark scar on their face, you know, the, the carposy sarcoma. And, you know, I had a limit, very limited knowledge, but I knew that there was a human being on the other side of that door that was being brutally ignored. And I wasn't going to stand for that. So I had to go in. And, and what, when you look back, what was it that motivated you? And how did the nurses and the others around react to a person like you of singular intent, absolutely committed to doing the right thing? in circumstances that was causing so much difficulty for others? You know, I just have always known that it was the hand of God that sent me into that room. And I've always felt like that I was doing what he asked of us to do in the Bible, what Jesus, you know, the red lines in the Bible, Jesus said, take care of the sick, take care of the hungry, take care of the people that need taken care of. And I had always, you know, grown up knowing that. And if I would sit in and hear the most beautiful sermons on Sunday morning about the same thing, you know, I'm Methodist and we don't have enough religion to offend anyone. And I like that about a church. I don't want to go in and have them fuss at me about, you know, not bringing enough people to church. I want to go out and practice what they tell me to do. And I'm raising a young daughter to do what the Bible tells us to do. And um, they just, it was horrible how we were treated. It was horrible. The nurses, they backed up. And the, I just wanted, you know, when I went into his room and I took his hand and I said, is there anything that I can do for you? He said he wanted his mama. Well, that's easy. That's simple. I can do that. And I, you know, announced that, you know, he wanted his mother. And that's when everything changed. They all backed up. And like I had just been splattered with vomit. And they just, the looks on their faces, I'll never forget. And they go, you didn't go into that room, did you? And they said, honey, his mama's not coming. Nobody's coming. He's been here six weeks. Nobody's coming. And I thought, wow, what am I going to do now? So I asked for his mother's phone number. If they weren't going to call her, I was. And so I went, they, I reached for the phone on the desk, which I'd used for years. And um, they said, no, the pay phone is down the hall. And I thought, oh, my gosh, we've come to this. So I, you know, found a dime and I went down there and put it in the phone and I called her and she goes, I don't know what you have at that hospital, but it's not my son. My son died years ago. Don't call me back and hung up on me. And I thought, oh, no, you're not going to hang up on me. So I called her back and I told her that if she hung up on me one more time, I'd put her son's obituary in their hometown newspaper and I would list his cause of death. I had her complete attention. And she said, you know, my son died years ago when he went gay and I don't know what that thing is you have up there, but it's not my son. So don't even call me back when he dies. 
And she hung up on me again, but I let it go. And the nurses, they were watching me like a hawk. And I thought, no, I'm not going to let them know that they got me. So I just straightened myself up and put a smile on my face and went back into his room. Without putting all that, I wasn't going to get AIDS from my hair or from my shoes. And so I went back in and I took his hand and he looked at me and he said, Oh, mama, I knew you'd come. What do you do then? You know, what do you do? I thought, oh my gosh, I'm what? And so I went back to my friend Bonnie and I was hoping she would say, oh, I'm in a lot of pain. I need you. But no, not Bonnie. She wrote on a pad, I'm fine. He's not. Go back in there with him. So that's how it started. You say a bit more about the conditions in a community that cause that kind of reaction to happen, that causes a mother to react as she did and the nurses to react as they did. How do you, what are the feelings that could give rise to a situation that is very painful even to hear as you recount it? Well, and I don't know how other religions would handle a situation like this back then, but the Christian community over here, it was just horrible, absolutely horrible. And, you know, they, um, it came from the churches. It came out of the pulpits is where it came from. And the families are so indoctrinated into the hate of a liver here. And um, that's where it came from. That's where the homophobia came from, which I actually think was the worst. I think that AIDS was just, they go, oh, well, that's their punishment. God, that God created that disease to take them down, and that's their punishment for being gay, was being gay. That's why they, that's when they threw you out of your church and out of your home and everywhere was when they found out that you were gay. So, so, so that was 1985, 1986. I want to come back to your story, but right. today we're in 2021. It's 35 years ago. Would it happen differently today? if you were in that situation, has anything changed or do you think it's essentially the same? It did change for a long time. Things got so much better. And then we got President Trump. And I really even hate to use president in front of his name. But I have friends from all over the world who would not come to the United States before COVID because they were afraid of Trump and how he let everything get out of hand and his hatred for the LGBTQ plus community uh, was just, you know, everybody was just on such thin ice and on tippy toes over here that, um, you know, it's been an awful four years. Um, you know, it, what it did is it brought out the, the true people. People have always had prejudice over here. And in Arkansas, we're a very rural town. I think we only have about maybe 2 million people in the entire state. And back then, we had about a million, 250,000 back then. But um, it's, you know, I don't know why people hate the LGBT community as much as they do. Because I have found through 35 years of research, I suppose, I was researching, but I found the LGBTQ plus family to be closer to the body of Christ than any of the people sitting in church on Sunday mornings. 
And I truly feel that. I don't believe it. I feel it. I know that's the truth. And there's something about being kind and thoughtful and caring and loving to your fellow man that just scares the bejesus out of Christians. And um, they just can't handle it. But they're this hate. I mean, I remember when I was a little girl, I was in second grade and I had the semis frosted so you couldn't see out because they didn't dare want you daydreaming. And um, I remember the teachers saying, oh, well, you know, everybody that doesn't go to this particular little tiny Baptist church, you know, this particular church are going to hell. And I said, well, what about the kid goes, oh, well, they worship Mary and burn candles. They're going to hell. Well, what about the Jewish children? Oh, well, they killed Jesus. They're going to hell. I mean, I'm talking about second graders. So they indoctrinated into you very early on. And um, hate begets hate. And, and, it hasn't, um, and it hasn't changed that much, you're saying? Not really, not, not at this time. But the good thing about Trump's administration, we found out who our allies are. And that's much more important to know than who your enemies are. Because your enemies can change, but not your allies. Can we go back to Jimmy and what happened afterwards? Um, it's a very powerful story that you've just described, and you tell it very beautifully in the book. Um, you spent 13 hours with him you were with him when he died what what happened to you then what 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 was the what was the effect of that on your being and the direction that you felt you wanted to take well it changed everything for me it um and i didn't realize a lot of the things that changed for me but you know, I took Jimmy and I had to, you know, he was mine essentially then. And I paid to have him cremated. And I never thought about, you know, how he would come back to me. But he came to me through the mail, through the post in a cardboard box, which is how they send cremated remains over here, in a plastic bag. And I just couldn't bury that box in the ground like that. He needed dignity. So I went to... I have a friend who has a pottery shop and I asked him if he had a cookie jar that he couldn't sell. Maybe it had a chip in it or it didn't fire right. And so he gave it to me and I took it home and I put Jimmy in it and I sealed it up and I took him to the cemetery and I buried him in my family's plots. And the family cemetery started to play a really significant role in your life in a way, presumably neither your mother nor you could ever have expected. Where, where, how do you explain where this came from? What was going on within you? Did it surprise you, the, the passion, the energy that drove you? Because you didn't stop after that, quite the opposite. Well, how could I? I mean, how, what do you tell the next person? I'm sorry you're dying, but go find somebody else to help you because it was not going to get any better than this. I knew how, you know, how society treated. Back then, it was just gay men at the point, you know. But I knew how they treated gay men. I knew. I heard what other straight people said about the gay community. You know, I heard it everywhere as a straight person. 
And so I knew what they thought of them. And I knew that if I didn't do it, there was no one left to do it. There was Because they had been taking care of each other. They had been taking care of their, it would have been their husband back then, but we called it, you know, everybody called it their lovers, but they were taking care of their lovers who died and then taking care of a friend who died just so they would have a place to live until they, you know, they kind of couch surfed their way down to the bottom to where there weren't any more couches left because all of their friends had already died and they were dying and they came home knowing that if they came home weighing less than 100 pounds, that surely their mothers would take them back in. But they didn't. What happened sort of organizationally? You then effectively took your compassion forward and people started coming to you, as you described it in the book. What, what, what were the main challenges that you faced at that point in the mid-1980s and the late-1980s, and how did it change over time? You mean uh, the challenges with the church and with the people in town? I had to find them food. I had to find them housing. I had to find them medical treatment, and there was none. And uh, I had to find them everything that they had. And you know, when someone would die, I would inherit their medication. And, I, you know, they didn't, they, it was almost impossible to get an AIDS patient on pain medication back then because they thought, well, you know, they deserve whatever they're in and surely they don't have any feelings. So they wouldn't even give them pain medication in the hospitals. It was horrible. But I kept a collection of, or if somebody couldn't take their medication, if they had side effects, I would keep their medication. I had a whole pantry full of it because, um, you know, people would come home to die and they couldn't get the medication they were on because the pharmacist, number one, we couldn't find a doctor that would help them. And number two, the pharmacist would tell me, I know what this is for and don't ever come back in here again. I mean, I mean what, what you're describing, as you do in the book, is it's almost unbearable and it's very, very hard to comprehend at, at the human level, what I'm looking for is, which you describe in the book, but I prefer to hear you talk about it, the, the rays of light, the crack of light, when you began all of a sudden to see that there were people out there that you could turn to, because things did change with some people. Yes. And I found that um, the church that I went to had all of the people in town. If you were anybody in town, you know, you were the mayor or whoever you were, the doctors, they all went to my church. And they were the quiet ones who would come to me later, you know, and just let me know. They didn't say anything, but it was just like a look that they would give me, that I knew that I could trust them. It like my banker. And he was so precious and so wonderful to me. And he would have an air, uh, air ambulance waiting for me. I mean, I wouldn't even be out of his office before it would be, you know, ready at the airport to go pick someone up. Or, you know, the dry cleaners who just, you know, he was a quiet man and no one would ever know he was a sniper in World War II. But, you know, he would see that utilities were turned on or people had food or their clothes were clean. And I had people throughout town that did that but no one i never outed anybody straight or gay mm. and what has hiv crossed out of the gay lgbtq 
community into the straight community? Did that begin to change people's attitudes or, or not as much as you would have thought? Not as much as I would have thought because um, the people that the straight people in town that got it weren't straight. And uh, but they were married and had five kids because you couldn't any kind of a business down here because it you know no one you'd be run out of town on a rail, and so um, you had to be on the down low. And um, I had this one woman and her husband died of AIDS, and we were at this little dinner party one you know later. Well, he got it from a blood transfusion in 1984. And I had to take her in the kitchen and say they didn't have tests until March of 85. So she goes, oh, yeah, she went right back out and changed her date because she didn't want anybody to know that, you know, he could have possibly, possibly gotten it any other way. And the straight community just never paid any attention. They just thought, no, it's not getting into the straight community. So you also begin to occupy this extraordinary position in a relatively small community as the holder of secrets, of rather intimate secrets. Ah, people are talking to you, yes. friends, their lovers, and there is an underground life in the community that the community doesn't want to know about. Absolutely. And um, the women in town hated me. The men all came to me for safer sex tips and, you know, um, most of the men had even, uh, my age, you know, you have to remember that we were in our 20s and 30s and we had birth control. So no one ever, and we didn't have HIV. So, you know, all you had to worry about was getting pregnant. And that's all the man had to worry about was getting a woman pregnant. So, you know, you had birth control pills. You didn't have to worry about pregnancy. So you could have all the unsafe sex that you wanted because no one at the time knew it was unsafe. And I think that that, uh, you know, and then I knew who everybody in town was sleeping with because if they didn't tell me, somebody else would. And one time Billy was in the bathroom and um, he had locked himself in there. And I went over and he had the phone book and the telephone and a legal pad. And he was writing down the names of everybody that he had ever slept with calling whoever and, and whoever answered the phone, whether it's his wife or child, or, oh, I have AIDS and I slept with husband, and he'd hang up and call the next person because his mind was so far gone. And he said, oh, yeah, I made a list for you too. And I'm like, I don't need a list, Billy. I don't want to know. <laughs> I mean, it's, it is, I mean it's, a, it's an extraordinary story at so many levels. I mean, what you've just described about Billy, and I, I want to ask you a question about him in a moment, is it's a sort of modern form of contact tracing, but one right. has for the recipient family. I mean, I'm imagining the wife picking up the telephone and hearing this being thrust down the telephone to her by dear Billy, who you described so beautifully. How does Absolutely. the wife in your community react to that information? What does your wife oh, I know. What does the wife do? Yeah, could you Oh, she goes nuts and uh, usually would call me like I had anything to do with it. And, of course, I didn't know what she was talking about. And, you know, she was going to get that information from somebody except me. And so I just played innocent and dumb. And, um, you know, but if her husband's sleeping around on her that much, she should have already known that. 
that she would have presumably drawn a distinction between her husband sleeping with other women, which might be unacceptable, but less unacceptable than sleeping right. with men. Oh, exactly, because her husband's not that kind of a man at all. And, uh, oh, yeah, and she usually thought they were sleeping with me. And I'm just kind of like, why would I want your husband? It's just Seriously, I didn't even want my own. <laughs> you are an incredible storyteller, Ruth. and Just an incredible <laughs> compassion. You. And on the subject of compassion, one of the most amazing characters in your book is Billy. Can you tell us about Billy? Tell, tell this audience, this wonderful audience, about Billy because it's an extraordinary story. Isn't he? Billy was magical. Billy was that once in a lifetime comet that you get to see. But I was lucky enough to know it was a once in a lifetime comet. And he was the brightest star on the stage and he was very quiet, very quiet and meek. And you would never know that he did anything extraordinary, but, um, he was such a beautiful man and such a beautiful woman. And he just had the it quality. He just had it. Mm. And uh, he wanted to share it with the, he's, he's famous all over the world. There's nothing that would make him any happier than to have all eyes on him and look at him now. Well, we're talking about him and we're evoking his spirit in the most positive way. Yeah. Because he was your friend. Yes. yes, I knew him before he got, well, before he knew he was sick. And um, he was so young that you just didn't even give it a thought. Mm -hmm. And I know the situation behind it and, the, you know, the timeline wraps up right for it to have happened to him early in his life. But, um, you know, he was just so special. And he was not going to die. He didn't ever say, oh, I'm not going to die. But he, he wasn't going to die. He knew that there would be, as all of my guys did, they all took their AZT the day they died because they knew that day after tomorrow, there'd be a vaccine. There would be a cure. And they just knew it would be in time for them. Thank you for listening to the Hay Festival podcast. Join us next Friday for the revelation of Peter 2.0, Peter Scott Morgan's journey to combine his humanity with artificial intelligence in order to become the first human cyborg. Scott Morgan is a scientist who was diagnosed in 2017 with motor neuron disease. He talks to our Hay Festival president and technophile, Stephen Fry. As ever, support us by giving this podcast a rating or sharing it with your friends. This podcast was presented by me, Poppy Evans. I'll see you same time, same place next Friday.